As I learn about Milford Christian Church and write these episodes, it strikes me that I've never really spoken on this podcast about my feelings on religion. From 1983 to 1992, I attended kindergarten through eighth grade at the now defunct St. Mary Catholic School in Meriden, Connecticut. I was fourth generation of the oldest family there, going back to my great-grandma Anna. After that, as you went down the line, there were always Steinbecks, Olszewskis, and Fritzes graduating from SMS, siblings and cousins including my grandfather in 1949 and my mom in 1971, until you got to my sister, 1998, and me. Being SMS royalty didn't really come with any perks that I can recall, but I did graduate as valedictorian, which is a big deal unless you consider my tiny class of 14. Three years before me, in 1989, a certain producer that you and I both know and love had been the third of his siblings to matriculate from the school. We wouldn't meet up again until 2009 on a weird day when I'd returned to my hometown from where I was living in Boston for the weekend. I was back to attend, on the same day, a funeral for a former classmate and a book signing by another, a woman who would marry Joe and me the next year. At the time, Joe was single parenting two young daughters whom I would adopt a few years later. He had been quite the ladies' man in 7th and 8th grade and would later ask me, didn't you think I was hot back then? All the girls did. Thinking back to the last time I'd seen him, I laughed. I was 10, you perv, I said. On that fateful day back in 2009, Joe and I bonded over experiences we had shared, together yet apart, through our years in school. We both had a lot to say, both for the stories themselves and how they had shaped us as people. Indulge me here while I relay some of those stories and the reason why I don't consider myself religious to one of the former Berean kids. I'm pretty much an atheist as well, and it's just hard because when I was a kid, I mean, the Catholic thing, I went to the Catholic school because, like, my mother had gone there and my grandfather had gone there and blah, blah, blah. And I think everybody stopped being religious. Like, I mean, my mother was, you know, she graduated from high school in, like, the mid-'70s, and she was all about, like, drugs and rock and roll, so... That was out the window. And then by the time I reached the school, that was out the window. So it was more about getting a better education than anything. Yeah. But then I started to see, like, as a kid, I was, like, I so hypocritical. And, like, I think I might have told, well, I didn't tell you this part. I remember, like, the priest wouldn't let me make my first communion. Like, I was seven. And we had a very small class. So we all are supposed to line up, head out to, like, go to our first communion practice. And they hold me back. And I'm, like, yeah. you know, seven. And... I'm like, wait, why can't I go? And not to brag, but I was always like, you know, I I was always like the highest grades in the class. Like I always, whatever. So I'm like, like me? You're holding me back? Like what about that ne'er-do-well? Like, no. And they wouldn't tell me why. I went home and told my parents. And then it turned out that I guess my parents weren't like tithing enough to the church. And the priest had to come over and have a conversation with my parents and was like praying with them and you're not, and I <laughs> I tried to stay up and like listen at the door, but I fell asleep. Uh-huh. And it was like, you're not tithing enough and if you don't start contributing more, I'm going to start charging you guys non-parishioner prices. So like my dad or tuition. Uh-huh. So my dad like did the math and he was like, well actually the amount that you wanna charge us in tithing is more than a non-parishioner tuition would be, so, like, go ahead and do it. <laughs> my dad was like, I don't... Crazy. like, you can't take communion unless... Yeah, you're unless you're paying, and, right, and, then, like, embarrass and isolate a seven-year-old child, and then later, uh-huh. like, a couple years later, it's it's a huge... And I talked a little bit about it, I think, on my first episode, but this little girl, her father had a schizophrenic snap or break, and he murdered her, and it was the principal's daughter... And the principal was, oh, it was awful. I was nine and Joe was 12. And I found out later, because Joe and I didn't really know each other in grade school, but I found out Joe was the little girl's brother's best friend. Um. And so the father is in, but he's in a mental hospital and he's been there since 1987 when this happened. But the principal, the mother, was an ex-nun and the priest who had like asked my parents, you know, you're not contributing enough. He started to counsel her and then they started having sex and then they both basically like ran away together and they were like excommunicated from the church. As an adult, woman like it was weird when I was a kid because it was like wait we just lost our priest and our 
principal because they were having like I didn't get it and now I look back and I'm like you took advantage of a woman in her grief to like have sex with her Oh, yeah. You know, All and you do is take advantage of people. Exactly. In their darkest, weakest times. Like, I feel like all, you know, Jim's congregation comes there because they're all hurting in some way. And they just feed off of that and find their weakness. And, how, you know, how do we wrap them in here so that they're kind of stuck with us? I'm Jessica Fritz Aguirre, and this is Sticky Beak, Season 3, Episode 6, Matthew 1815 and Mrs. Martin's dogfight. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. to our sponsors, JPEX Financial and probate attorney Nia Sradosky. JPEX is a female-owned and operated financial services company. Jamie and Carol can help you plan for all phases of life, from homing in on retirement to planning for your children's education. Whatever the milestone may be, they'll be there to serve you. Please visit their website, www.jpexfinancial.com or call 860-430-5397 to speak with Carol or Jamie and take care of your financial future. And make sure your estate is in order with Nia Swardoski, a probate attorney who did mine and Joe's estate planning, something we've been putting off for years. Nia is excellent at her job and gave us peace of mind for our future. Please call 860-966-9968 or visit ncsestateprobatelaw.com. In a church they hadn't chosen, in a school they'd rather be anywhere but, the children of Berean were living in guilt and fear. A lot of times their parents, for complicated reasons I will discuss in a future episode, and by the school and church's design, might as well have been on Mars. And when the kids tried to turn to themselves or a friend for comfort, they often found themselves denied. If you had a thought against the church, Brian taught, it had been sent by the devil, meant to trick you into doing his bidding. And Brian would teach its adults as well as its kids that sometimes, no matter how hard you tried, you weren't even good enough for God himself. One of those former students, now a transgender man I'll call Andrew, has arthrogryposis, a disability involving a contracting of his joints and abnormal muscle development. Although we spoke quite a bit, it's more difficult for Andrew to use his hands and fingers. So over the course of our conversations, he was kind enough to send me a bunch of voice notes. In this one, he describes how his disability affects his body. The way my body is being disabled, it's kind of like if you stood up and hunched over a little bit and your butt was poking out and your legs can't bend, so keep your legs completely straight and my arms are fused at a 90 degree angle, so it kind of looks like I'm holding my stomach all the time. Here's Andrew again with his fiance in the background. I was a little kid. So I just told my fiance a story. That's why you hear her all revved up in the background. (laughs) It was just a flash memory. Like, I don't know what triggered this memory, but I think one of the most devastating things to me, even over the paddlings and breaking my arm and just all of the abuse there was actually not even in the school, but it was in the church. And I would always go up for prayer. And for some reason, they always would start praying over me for my handicap. Like they thought that's what I was going up for prayer for automatically without even asking. And They would literally pray for my handicap to go away, for my arms to straighten and start working, and my body to be broken and then fixed and be healed. What the fuck? That's that's my fiance. What the shit is that? And when the prayer was done, they would like sit there and push on your forehead so hard, like 
like trying to slay slain you in the spirit or whatever like even though not a lot of people do that I'll slay them in the spirit already. <laughs> <laughs> okay. she, she's all fired up bro <laughs> fucked up dude but they'd sit there praying over me pushing my freaking forehead till I felt like I had a thumb dent in it and when I wouldn't fall back they said I was resisting and then when the prayer was done and I wasn't healed, they said that it was my fault, that I wasn't trusting in God enough and I wasn't believing hard enough. And it was pretty much my fault that I was, wasn't healed. I thought you'd like that one. Any last words, baby? They fucked up. <laughs> this lesson resonated with Andrew, who still loves God despite becoming, as you will come to learn in this episode and others, one of Mrs. Martin's favorite targets. I would just go home and go in my room and just freaking cry and cry and ask God why, you know, like they're telling me to trust in you and to do this and I am and I know you can and I would pray and they, they would just keep telling me I wasn't doing good enough and I wasn't believing hard enough. And it's really like, uh, I, I just told my fiance, it's a wonder I still love God to this day because that church will push you so far away from God when you finally get out of that school and that church. It's almost like they, they try and brainwash you there. They try to brainwash you with a lot, though. They push you and push you and push you, and you, you shouldn't do that, especially to a child of, like, seven, eight years old. These days, when Andrew looks back, he's proud of all the work he's done to thrive as a disabled person, like after he was told he would never walk. I was a stubborn child, stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. I'm still stubborn. And I pushed and pushed and pushed. And I was late, but at three years old, I started walking. And when I started walking, they brought me to the church, and I walked down the middle of the pews, you know, because there's pews on the left and there's pews on the right. Then I walked down the aisle there, and they were all praising God that he healed me, and it was him. And trust me, I know God probably had a big part of it, but I also had a big part of it. I did a lot of work, and I was stubborn as fuck. So I felt like they weren't giving me any credit at all for it. And like when I was older, I realized that and it upset me a little bit because they made it seem like the first, first, first time I started walking was down the aisle of the church and God had healed me. As a child of Berean, you weren't safe anywhere from Mrs. Martin. Like I said, she was like a shadow. She was like the boogeyman. She was always there. And she'd literally follow people watch people, spy on people. It was just real creepy. Peeking into other teachers' classrooms was kid stuff, but that didn't mean she didn't enjoy it. And then there was just the fact that Mrs. Martin, it really seemed like she ran the whole school. Like, she would come into class and just stand there and watch you or watch the teacher. Like, she even seemed to make some of the teachers uncomfortable. And she'd literally undermine them and make it like the teachers didn't know what the hell they were teaching, make them feel stupid, make the students feel stupid. She'd literally come in the class and, like, go down the line and make you sit up straight. If you weren't sitting up straight enough, if you weren't holding your pen right, I mean, there were particular particular things. Just like with everything else, Susan had to take it 10 steps further. Once a girl left the trailer classroom to use the only bathroom in the main church building, Mrs. Martin left too, following the girl through the tiny parking lot and ducking behind cars to hide when spotted. It wasn't unusual for Susan to abandon her class, sometimes even the school itself, for long periods when she was supposed to be teaching. Often, at least once a day, it was to paddle a kid. Sometimes, it was just for funsies. Mrs. Martin would leave one woman row and come back with pastries on her husband's credit card. 
One time, she went out and bought Alan Parody and Jim Loomer either laptops or tablets. Here's another story with a surprise appearance from David Vincent, Mark's son with Kathy, and Doreen's half-brother. What's going on when she's out of the office? How long has she gone for and what's going on? There were honestly days where she just didn't show up for class and we were just left on her own for an hour or two before the next teacher came. Okay. It was mostly just like what any kids would do if they're unsupervised. We would just hang out, we'd talk, we'd just off, we'd get rowdy, but like no one was doing anything, I mean, too crazy, at least not when I had heard the teacher. I mean, they're, they're actually, ooh, there is one incident with David Vincent that I remember very vividly. When I was in sixth grade, he was in fifth grade. We were in the same literature class, and our teacher had to leave the room to go do something, and he and another boy got to a fight. He stabbed him with a pencil. Oh, okay. And this kid, this kid had fallen off the roof the prior year and had a bad leg. He stabbed him in the bad leg. Okay. What's the repercussion to David Vincent for that? That was a paddle. On yet another occasion, the boys took advantage of being left unattended by launching paper towels at each other. When one landed by the door, the students slowly realized they weren't alone. I think we talked about this. But she would leave the classroom and we found her. We saw her peeking through the vent on the other side of the door, looking up at us. Like she was laying on the floor looking up at the classroom through the vent. On the floor? Yeah, she was laying on the floor. Oh my the vents on the, on the doors were on the lower side of the door. Like, you can't feel good about yourself, right? I know. It's like, and, you know, she would just, like, leave us there unattended and watch us through the vent. That's what my teacher, that's how she chose to spend some of her time. When I saw her hair and her eyes through those slats on the bottom of that door, one woman wrote me, my stomach sank. I can't tell you how creepy that was. Not only was it creepy, but it was overkill, as I would also learn that the school had installed a secret intercom in the classroom so they could spy from afar. As I mentioned in the last episode, I will eventually tackle Susan's brutal love affair with the corporal punishment of children. But she had another passion that also served to build and amplify her ability to keep kids in line, taking them down a peg as publicly as possible especially if they were prettier or more talented or more spirited than she thought they should be. Over and over, I heard how much Mrs. Martin relished humiliating kids, girls especially. She had some kind of humiliation kink. I feel like she got off on it in a way. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't do that as much as she did it and not enjoy it. And it was always with girls. Like, she would, she would get her son up and like pretty much make an example of him but it was really the girls that she would just humiliate it turns out susan had a lot of practice when i heard that she had held her son up as an example i assumed that meant as a good example i was wrong here's phyllis she who made the mac and cheese that susan coveted almost as much as she coveted power so did but she really was hard on yeah. You know, he was her oldest. I mean, right in front of the whole church there, she would make him look like a... She would belittle him so bad in front of the whole church. That's like, how she was. Like saying what? Well, if he did something, instead of it being something between her and him, she'd tell the whole church everything. Oh, my God. Like she belittled him in front of his, his classmates and everybody else's classmates. You know, she didn't care. Do, I think she belongs in a nighthouse, if you want my opinion. <laughs> Do you think that she felt threatened by him? Because he sounds like a really smart individual, and I it always struck me that she was intimidated. I don't know, but I, I do know one thing, that was a sweet kid. He really was. He was so polite, and I, I mean, he would go out on his way to be nice to people, and everybody liked and maybe she didn't like the idea that everybody liked yeah. I don't know. I really don't know. But, like I say, it got where she thought nothing of beating him around people. Uh, it was humiliating. It really was. Susan's humiliations were only one instance of reality at Berean flying in the face of the ideals it preached. Under the heading of discipline, 
the student's handbook reads as follows. Correction must consider the dignity of the child as created in God's image. While certain limited humiliation is inherent in the principle of correction, purposeful public humiliation should not be considered a part of biblical correction. In all fairness to Susan, though, her motive for embarrassing kids rarely seemed to be about correction. Often, it was just about making a student look stupid. Sometimes the attempts were juvenile. Okay, the readers, you know, they were like in old English, like not how books are written anymore. But she asked me to define utter. It was supposed to be like, you know, speaking something. And I was just really embarrassed because I'm like, why is she asking me? She she's specifically went after one word that could mean, you know, a body part of an animal private body part and I was like 11 or 12 at the time so I was so, like, so embarrassed like it means like saying something and she's like look it up in the dictionary then just to make you say like a cow's udder yeah this like woman. a cow's boob like <laughs> do you want me to say that <laughs> Susan cared nothing for privacy almost baiting kids into feeling comfortable before she sprang like a journal entry one time and then she read mine aloud to the class. It was like a writing assignment that we handed in. And she was like, yeah, free writing. And it was kind of like, it was, I remember being so embarrassed because I wrote like, oh, I forgot to say, like in the, I wrote that out. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I almost forgot to write this. Like, you know, a kid writing in their diary. Yeah. Something like that. And she wrote that out loud and she almost like laughed while she was reading it out loud. And it was embarrassing. I didn't know she was going to read those aloud. Did she read everybody's out loud? I don't know. Is she? I have. She's naming you like she says this is hers, and then she reads it? Yeah. Oh, my God. Did you write about, oh. was it something really personal that you wrote about? I mean, obviously, you didn't know she was going to no, read it wasn't, away. No, it wasn't like, it wasn't like something, some secret that came out. I just remember, she, like, I was just writing as if I was writing to myself. Mm -hmm. Like and and uh, I was just like mortified that she then read it out out loud to the class because it, it just made me feel like really stupid and embarrassed. As I mentioned, Mrs. Martin would often single out Andrew, the disabled student, for special attention. Bear in mind when listening to the story that Andrew isn't always able to use his arms and fingers well, so sometimes he had to hold things in his mouth. You know, Mrs. Martin. You know how she was. And she would like always go to other people's classes and just put her nose where it didn't belong. And I was having issues with multiplication, I think it was. And it's not even that I was bad at it, it's that I couldn't do it in my head like everybody else. I was better at it on paper. Like I was actually okay with it on paper. But when they would ask you to speak the questions out I felt put on the spot and I I think they they think I had like a learning disability because I learned things a little bit slower than everyone and it was really hard for me to like retain information I could do something and with help I could get it right over and over and over the second I have to do it on my own it's like duh so Mrs. Martin came in one day and saw struggling with me and Mrs. Martin literally like gathered all of the teachers I think they got I think the principal was there I think she even got past her gym and literally got all of the teachers gathered around put me at the chalkboard which first of all I didn't like going up on the chalkboard because I don't like putting things in my mouth that's not mine but she made me go up to the chalkboard. She wrote multiplication problems and literally put me on the spot in front of almost every teacher, every everyone. And when I freaking choked and froze and couldn't do it in front of everyone and was pretty much almost in tears, that's, I think, when she decided to keep me like, hold me back on her damn own. Yes, you heard right. Mrs. Martin decided without approval from anyone to hold Andrew back a school year. She gave me a multiplication problem, and when I couldn't do it, was just putting me down 
pretty much saying like yeah this person doesn't she doesn't need to be in this class she needs to go back a year or two blah blah blah, blah going on and on and on I, I was doing fine with multiplication it was just like having that many eyes on me right I just froze up I have a lot of anxiety issues now and I think it's It was just another instance of Susan exploiting a child's weakness to deepen and intensify her own power. Yeah, what happened was I was going from fourth grade to fifth grade, but fifth grade was going to be out in the trailers that they had built. But because I was handicapped and fell so easy, Mrs. Martin's like, oh, we'll just keep her in the main building but be teaching her fifth grade work. That way I didn't have to go out at the trailers and go up and down the stairs, especially during winter time. And Mrs. Martin literally had me do fourth grade all over again without telling my parents, without telling anyone. So I basically repeated fourth grade for no fucking reason. And I don't know how the cat got out of the bag, or how they figured it out, how my mom figured it out. But when it got found out, like, Berean panicked. I think Mrs. Martin panicked. And they literally shoved me in fifth grade class out in the trailers when there was, like, literally two weeks of school left. And they pretty much just stuck me in the class just to sit there and do nothing. And then, like... If I was, like, if I, I think I paid attention quite a bit and was trying to, I raised my hand to answer a question. And they're like, no, you can't answer. You don't even know what we're talking about. So it's like, why even make me sit in fifth grade if you're not going to let me do anything? And after that, that's when my mom pulled me out of fifth grade. Well, two weeks of fifth grade and started homeschooling me. And Mrs. Martin's humiliations weren't just limited to the classroom. Once, she cast herself as the school nurse, which, with nothing more than a high school degree, she was less qualified for than the role of teacher. She also humiliated me with this ties into the school nurse thing. Mm-hmm. She was doing life checks. She said I have life. And then she made me sit in the corner of her a room. I don't know if it was her nurse's office or not, but it was the corner of one of the rooms, like offices, and she's like, okay, class, don't look up because whoever's sitting here has life, and I don't want to, uh, what did she say? She was like, and you don't need to know who it is. So then, one by one, I made eye contact with my classmates because I wanted to see who it was, so she had them walk by me to get checked, and she knew exactly what she was doing, mm-hmm. and I was just sitting there, like, right. Susan was also obsessed with the female student's underwear. Hearing from one woman that she wanted to talk about underwear, I was confused. She was talking about the photos of Doreen in her underwear, the ones Mark had taken. The ones, by the way, that the Wallingford PD now denied to me existed. Right? Did you have, you were talking before when we were texting about the underwear photos. Yeah, oh no, the, no, the underwear situation at school. At your school? Yeah, at Berean. Oh, am I aware of this? Well, I, I think I said, so I, I told you, I think, I hope I didn't leave this out because it was very memorable. So Susan Martin loves humiliating people in front of others, like, as often as possible. And do this with me and other people in the class all the time. So after gym class, all of the girls in the entire school, all of the grades from like K through 12 were in the women's bathroom. And I was like one of the later ones to show up. I do remember this. Yep. Okay. No, but tell me, I want to hear. So at that point, she had already, Mrs. Martin had already like yelled at about this so I was like late to the you know what was happening and everyone's just looking at me like you know sorry in her eyes uh, and she's like someone left their underwear in the bath and they're they're white hand size six oh my god and it, you have to come forward and say who these 
yelling at me saying like you like admit to this um you know in front of all of the girls in the school mm-hmm. and i was and i couldn't believe like she was looking at me everyone was looking at me because i was like the last one there and no one fessed up to it before mm-hmm. and i was like well i'm wearing mine so those aren't mine i don't know what to tell you and then she like you know couldn't blame me for it anymore but she was she was trying to embarrass me in front of the whole school <laughs> all the girls in one of my group chats with the Berean alums, the woman who'd stood up to season on whether she was wearing underwear, whom I'll call A, mentioned the incident to a second woman, B. B had mentioned A's story to a third woman, C, who remembered A's underwear story. She remembered it vividly, B typed. Was it like I had said, asked A, or did she remember it differently? She just kept saying, yes, I remember that, was the reply. A was elated. It wasn't the first time she had expressed relief in sharing her stories. Once again, she wrote, I feel so freaking validated. I'm really glad. It wasn't just in my head. It would later turn out that Susan's hunt for the owner of the white Hanes size 6 had just been a trial run, and maybe, even, a farce. I was the last one in, and uh, she's like, is this about underwear? And I was like, oh, you remember what happened to me? She's like, no, I don't remember that happening to you it happened a lot that was a regular thing after that i think that was like the first time it happened and then it kept happening it's so shocked me with these kinds of things i always feel like i'm asking stupid questions because like i kind of know the answer but let's just break it down a little bit what would the trespass be like what would the infraction be that you're indecent because you left your underwear even if it were you i don't care who it is i don't know Aren't we getting, like, I guess someone was getting changed. I don't know why, because we still do addresses in gym class. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the infraction would be. It was just more about humiliation for her. She, that's what she wanted to do all the time. She went out of her way to, like, embarrass people or humiliate them. Cornering kids over their underwear in bathrooms fed another of Susan's obsessions with bathrooms, or washrooms, as she called them. It's apparently a Canadian thing. Oh, about that. Susan was born in Canada, but adopted as an infant and brought to the U.S. She grew up knowing Stratford, Connecticut, as her only home. So her accent, wrote one person in the know, is bullshit. Susan's adoption wasn't like open knowledge, and her aunts would probably still deny it to this day. But DNA doesn't lie. Back to the bathrooms, or the washrooms, as they're called if you're Canadian or pretending to be. Over and over, I heard they were one of Susan's favorite hunting grounds. I was having some trouble understanding why until someone spelled it out for me. It was control, they wrote. Children are vulnerable and exposed in the bathroom, and Susan jumped on the vulnerable. Here's Andrew. So pretty much uh, I'm disabled, and I need help in the bathroom. And if I am going to try to use the bathroom on my own I would have to get like fully undressed so that like my clothes wouldn't hit the water of the toilet or anything like that and it was after school I don't think anybody was there because my grandmother would just you know randomly go there to see and talk to people sometimes so I was in the bathroom and she's like I'll be right back to I'll be right back to wipe you, you know, just stay in here. And the way the, the girl's bathroom was, you walked in and there was like a wall blocking all of the bathrooms. So you had to like walk around that wall. And then there was a bunch of stalls and I would always go to the handicap one at the end, which was really big. And I thought my Nana was there because for some reason she had walked in Mrs. Martin walked in and she was like, hello. And for some reason, I don't know why I thought it was my Nana. So I cracked the door open, like just enough to peek my head out. And I guess she saw skin or something and then saw my clothes on the floor and flipped out. And she like pushes the door open and she's like, 
are you naked? And then, like, she, like, rushes out, and I don't know who she told, but you could tell she was, like, telling everybody that I was in there naked and made it seem like it was, like, a perverted thing when it wasn't. It was a disability thing. Andrew told me that after that day, whenever he was at church or at school, he would hold his urine so he didn't have to use the bathroom. And Susan and her crew had other favorite targets. While a core group of the Berean students were there for years, one year, especially for families of color, was enough to scare some families off forever. Here's Phyllis. There was a lot of black children and Puerto Rican children that came to the school. Mm-hmm. She was so rough on those kids that the following year, half of them didn't come back. Really? Really. And um, she was just nasty. The stories that you've heard to date have all been from white students, although I did hear many times that students of color had it worse, and my sources are working now to widen that net for me. One of them did tell me this story. There was even racism going on. I remember her name was I don't remember her last name, but she was Hispanic. And I think she was one of the only Hispanic people in my class. And she was very Hispanic. She had the Hispanic accent and everything. And she would say axe, kind of like a lot of African-Americans say axe instead of ask. And they literally got her into tears one day because she kept saying axe, how she was used to saying it you know that's how probably her whole family says it and they were literally screaming at her saying it's not an axe I'm not going to chop down a tree it's ask and they're like now say it and she would try to say it but her accent kept making her say axe and I swear they were gonna like have an aneurysm and it was like 15 minutes of just putting this poor kid down I remember she was right next to me, so I turned to her and I tried helping. And I was like, I know that's how you want to say it. I was like, but just try and repeat what they're saying. And I was trying to teach, and she finally said it. And they left her alone. And they're like, we better not hear you say acts again. And they're like, this is America, and you're going to learn our language even though she did speak English. This tracks well with what I've learned about racial relations at Berean, where Pastor Jim preaches that the real moral victor of the Civil War was the South. Until the mid to late 90s, Berean taught that blacks were biologically different from whites due to God's curse on Ham. Ham found Noah, his arc-famous father, drunk and naked, but instead of covering him, he gaped and laughed and invited his two brothers to look. When Noah awoke and sobered up, he cursed Ham's son, his own grandson, Canaan, to be a servant of servants to his brothers. Some sects of Christianity interpret the curse to be black skin, Canaan's descendants, the black race, a myth used to justify all manner of atrocities, including the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. In times of slavery, these teachings bled into the world of medicine, with some doctors opining that enslaved people had inferior lung capacity that would be strengthened by hard physical labor. Black people were also thought to have thicker skin and shallower nerve endings, making them impervious to pain and horrors at the hands of men like J. Marion Sims. He's the so-called father of gynecology. Between 1845 and 1849, Dr. Sims used enslaved black women without their consent or anesthesia for experimental gynecological surgeries. Just a few years ago in 2018, the New York Academy of Medicine removed a statue of Sims from Central Park. The year prior, a vandal had defaced the statue, or perhaps improved it, with the word racist, as well as a throat and eyes painted over in red. I've said before that in telling Doreen's story, I can't swing a dead cat without hitting women and girls abused at the hands of men. Here, they were named Anarka, Betsy, Lucy, Anne, Lavinia, Delia, and Julia. Never satisfied, Susan would marshal the power of God's word, specifically the book of Matthew, 
chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, to marshal her students to spy on each other, to bring her information that would cement the power she held over them all. Let's start with the source material from Milford Christian's preferred Bible, the New King James. Moreover, it reads, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Berean's interpretation of Matthew 18.15 is a little different. Here's one woman explaining how it worked in practice. Yeah, and it's more, I think, mainly more fear-based. With the snitching stuff, there's a Bible verse. We had to quote, like, if you saw someone do something wrong, you'd have to be like, I'm Matthew 18, 15 in you. Okay. That's the Bible verse. And it's like, first, you have to tell the person privately. It was like a whole step on thing I have to go through. So first it's just you and the person. You have to say you need to come forward basically telling yourself or admit that you're sinning or something. Mm -hmm. And and then if they don't do it, then you have to bring one or two friends to try to get them to admit to it. And then and then if that doesn't work, you have to go to the teacher or something. In a passage titled Conflict Resolution, the Berean Student Handbook reads as follows. Because every fact according to scripture must be determined by two or three witnesses, certain problems may not be immediately resolved. If sin is involved, we trust providence to uncover it in due season. Witch hunts, seeking evidence or opinions of others to prove one's suspicions, are forbidden us. Nonetheless, loving confrontation is usually all that is needed to uncover sin and produce reconciliation. Not practicing Matthew 18 leads to humanistic approaches, which can do great damage. Allowing sin to continue is not love. Breaking relationships and running away is not love and teaches children the opposite of Christ's way. Please practice Matthew 18. This is a difficult process for those not accustomed to it. Yet it is a gloriously wholesome approach and it works because it is Jesus' system. This biblical approach, which promotes trust and respect, has long served well to cut short disputes or even stop them before they begin. God's way works. The Berean students did not agree. It was fucked up mind games, one Berean alum told me. They made us agree to it in the class constitutions. It was definitely to pit us all against each other. Be the best tattletale you can be. Susan loved this like she was on a Matthew 1815 like just like she was on that train and she would always she would just be like Matthew 1815 um and she would love how like the kids would have to tell on each other and gang up basically on each other mm -hmm. you know having three friends against the person like you need to come forward and no one wants to come forward to her because they're gonna get paddled you know, it's not even about admitting, like, okay, I'm sorry I was wrong. It's like, I'm going to get physically hurt if I admit to being wrong. Matthew 18, baby, Susan would yell victoriously, pointing her finger in the air. It's almost like she's handing out, like, little prizes. Like, she's sending people out to inform. Like, she's doing it for her own power. Like, those kids, it almost feels like she's imbuing them with power because she's giving them the power to, like, quote, help their peers. But instead, it's like she's the all-seeing eye. Exactly. Exactly. To this day, she's the worst person in my life that I've ever met. And I have to be under her, you know, thumb for two and a half years. Right. As a kid, I was just awful. Susan Martin wasn't just on the Matthew 18 train. She was the fucking conductor. Kids could get Matthew 18, 15 for anything and everything. We had a script, one woman told me, if we saw someone misbehaving. Are you going to tell the teacher? 
or am I? Matthew 18 or whatever. Yeah, I think it was Matthew 18. Um, because I cut a corner with a mile. Oh. I was supposed to touch the uh, the there's a uh, speed limit sign, and I got close and turned around. And uh, yep, someone Matthew 18. One girl failed to tell anyone that a classmate had been holding an unlit cigarette. When another student reported the infraction, it was the one who'd kept quiet who suffered Susan's wrath. Oh, the girl told Susan, he was holding it, but he wasn't smoking it, so I figured he had just picked it up off the ground. I know you aren't stupid, Susan responded. She didn't heed the girl's response. Well, I guess I am because I didn't put that together before taking out her paddle. Another woman had this story. I remember the teacher left the room and she told everyone to not talk and to stand up and speak for righteousness sake, meaning tattle and speak up for righteousness sake if someone talks. At some point after the teacher left, I dropped my pencil and I asked the person sitting in front of me if they could pick it up for me. Because I spoke, another girl said, if you don't tell the teacher that you spoke, then I will. I laughed and said, I dropped my pencil. I didn't commit a sin, so no, I'm not going to say anything about it. There's no reason for it. Nevertheless, I got tattled on and was paddled for talking. It was laughable at that point in my head, and the true realization that these people are insane really kicked in. Not everyone fell in line. As I will later detail at length, the school also monitored students' behavior outside of school, even during the summers, for which they could also be subject to punishment. Parties were a huge no-no, and if Susan found out about one, you better believe she was going to get to the bottom of it. Once, a girl threw a party that featured a bunch of 13-year-olds making out. When Mrs. Martin heard, she launched an all-day investigation, pulling kids into her office one by one. Actual class time? Be damned. One source of mine who hadn't even attended the party emerged from her own interrogation to tip off her friends about the questions being asked to ensure that they were prepared for their own encounters with Susan. When her refusal to play along was found out, Mrs. Martin paddled her just as she'd paddled the partygoers. But usually, even when Susan wasn't directly involved, the Bree and kids understood the assignment. This one day we were at lunch last recess and two people who I saw were friends that I had confided in that um, I thought I was bisexual, came up to me uh, in the classroom during lunch in front of our entire class and told me that they couldn't be friends with me anymore because I liked girls. So this set off a whole thing for me where I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, what, what do I do? You know, I started crying. So teachers saw that I was, you know, blowing my eyes out and I got called into the office and they started questioning me, asking me about my relationships with best friends and like if I'd ever done anything with, with girls or actually explored it. So that happened in one office and then we moved they moved me into Pastor Jim's office to talk to him about it. And that's when it was the whole well you can't be bisexual because then you're promiscuous because it implies two people and that's against the will of God. And so I just completely backtracked and I was because I didn't know what to do, was just like, well, I thought I might, I told them that because I thought I might be, but I'm totally straight, it's fine, I prayed to Jesus, we're all good. Right, so are the students, like, telling on you, are they both girls? Yes. And friends of yours? I mean, how would you characterize your relationship with them before that? Um, before that, I mean, I was friends with them, I was felt close enough to confide in them. Right. That, um, I would come to find out later that they had been talking about me with some of the other girls and, like, their this experience, the student told me, was one of the worst things they have ever been through. That was the lesson I had to break myself of after I left there with don't trust anyone because after, you know, trusting two people telling them that I thought I might be bisexual and um, running around and saying it in front of everyone in the school that they could, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was very much like, okay, I can't trust people anymore. And Susan would weaponize students against each other even when they weren't willing or even witting participants. There was another occasion when the school day was scrapped for an all-day interrogation. This time after it was discovered that the kids hadn't just had a party, 
but they'd used it to sneak in a viewing of the R-rated movie Ransom, starring Mel Gibson. But it wasn't really the party, or Mel, that Mrs. Martin was interested in. I didn't really ever hit it off with Just our personalities are different. She was like, not that I'm a, a bad kid or anything, but she was so goody too. She was like, she would, she would do her work like when Mrs. Martin left the room. You know, just, she wasn't cool about that stuff. She just, she, you know, she just did, always did, uh, did her work. And I don't so I just, you know, we just weren't close friends. Then... At the party, I asked she was friends with her, and she said no. And in the meeting the next day, it was like, oh, yeah, she's friends with She said no. And Mrs. Ryan's like, and what did she say? Like, she asked, like, I think must have been the spy or something, because she asked to repeat the question, except it was spun around as if I said no. Mm-hmm. As I spent time listening to this woman accused of not liking a classmate over hours of conversations and text threads, it became apparent how much this moment still upsets her. It was wrong, she said. It was just wrong. But here's something else, something good that stems from airing all these old wounds over hours of conversations and text threads. The revelations about Susan's never-ending hunt for the owner of the white Hanes size 6 isn't the only instance of former Berean students getting in touch not just with me, but with each other. Some of them for the first time in years, and some of them for the first time ever. She and I have talked about it, one source said, when I told her a former classmate was speaking to me. We haven't talked in years, but we're both like, the fuck did we grow up with? And these people aren't just trashing Mrs. Martin and commiserating over shared traumas. Their conversations grant them understanding, render them strong in the knowledge that they weren't and aren't alone. As I have watched, these people are not only renewing their friendships, many of them are becoming friends. The most heart-rending example of this involves the woman whom Mrs. Martin used as an excuse to make her classmate cry while Susan gloated. Realizing that she was speaking to someone in touch with that former little girl, the woman Susan weaponized over 20 years ago made a request. Can you apologize for me, she asked. Is that weird? The response came less than a minute later. I just told her that you asked me to apologize, and she said there's nothing to apologize for, it read. You guys were kids, in a dogfight. Not gonna lie, I'm a little emotional over here, the first woman wrote. I had no idea she was in the same fight. That woman, the woman who is just now realizing that she wasn't in this fight alone, is the first intrepid voice from last April. The voice you heard at the beginning of this episode. And do is take advantage of people. Exactly. In their darkest, weakest times. Like, I feel like all, you know, Jim's congregation comes here because they're all hurting in some way. Um, and they just feed off of that and find their, you know, weakness. And, how, you know, how do we wrap them in here so that they're kind of stuck with us and keep this craziness going? The things she told me in those initial conversations the things she shared before this whole thing blew up have been repeated by others again and again and again. I believe that everybody from there, whether it's the church or the school, is like fucked up. And it's, it's like you go, you walk through those doors and it's like downhill from there. You're stuck and you're psychotic. As I've said, that first voice, that first intrepid voice, was far from the last I would hear. As I've told her and want to tell her publicly now, I'm so honored that she chose to share her pain and her trauma with me in the hopes that something good will come out of it. Without her, I wouldn't be sitting here, re-listening to hours of audio and trying to honor the stories of these former children in the best way I can. 
And as I listen, I realize something. These people, while scarred, are no longer stuck. They find happiness and peace with friends and partners, joy in things like music and art, Harley-Davidson's, and Wild Adventures theme park. They're survivors. Even with all the sadness that they carry, they got out. They've grown up into the adult Doreen was never allowed to become. Born in 1975, she would have been 21 in 1996 when the school opened. She would have been free. Who knows if she would have stayed? I guess we'll never know. These are the things I think about when I receive the Facebook video of Jim Loomer's sermon on September 23, 2020. For those of you who have been listening for a while, you might recall that as the weird limbo period I went through, full of self-doubt, between cooking eggs, the last episode of my first season in May 2020, and Barn Sale, the first of my second season in June 2021. The person who sent it to me provided the following color. Opening clip, you can see Jim, Mark, Susan, and Alan. There is a young boy sitting next to Susan, who is in the aisle in her wheelchair, and she is zoned in on him, and another little boy who is sitting in the front row with Mark. Susan rubs his head, pulls him in, tells him to come really close with her finger, so close that they are touching foreheads. I'm actually triggered by the way she points and uses her finger. She did that with me when she found me to paddle me in the downstairs hallway. These are the things I think about when I pose that first student a question. Over 20 years later, what is it like to have Berean in the rear view? Well, I never bought into it when I was there, so... Like, I wouldn't pray, like, I... And these people would be speaking in tongues, too. I was baptized there because I had the age limit. And they're like, okay, now you're going to start speaking in tongues because you're baptized. And I'm like, oh, God, like, do I have to? Is this an involuntary action that's going to just happen to me? I don't want to do that. So I never prayed. And I just, you know, I just felt like this was such a violation of everything, like my whole experience there with Susan Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never believed it. And the speaking in tongues, I'm like, oh, this is just ridiculous. Like, so I never really battled with, um, I, mean, I hold anger, I guess, to these people. Yeah. And that it's still going on. Like, that's what troubles me, you know? There's still have access to children. Like, no, like... And these are the things I think about as I ponder a class photograph one person sent me. Happened to come across an old picture, they wrote. Pretty sure this was fifth grade. The teacher in the upper right was some dude they hired who used to drive a hot lunch truck and had no teaching experience. That's David Vincent in the bottom left corner. And there he is, David Vincent. Berean Christian Academy, class of 2012. He's wearing a slight smile, a patterned bright blue shirt, and a black tie. I flip through my stack of photos on this case to another, Doreen's class picture from the fourth grade, gifted to me by her friend Lynn. I've mentioned this one before. Doreen in a brown vest and skirt with a white peasant blouse, white bows in her long dark hair. She's beaming. David and Doreen, Doreen and David, a brother and sister who would never know each other, separated across the 20-year distance that separates 2004, when David would have been in fifth grade, from 1984, when Doreen was in fourth. I can't get over how vibrant Doreen looks, wrote the person who'd known David at Berean. It just gets to me how you would never look at that picture and see a girl in distress. And knowing what her life was like, I can't even imagine how she was able to stay so bright. I get really sad when I think about how she didn't get the chance to get out like I did. The beautiful free life she could have led. Can I use that? I wrote back. I am literally writing the end to the episode right now. They told me I could, and I said thank you. When you hear, I know you'll understand. And their response was, I know I will too. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, 
Children.